It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 346 for June 9th, 2013. This week, Windows 8.1 due out this fall will bring back the start button, but without the start menu. Which is right for you? Google Apps, Zoho, Office 365, Office Suite, or LibreOffice? In short circuits, Samsung might have outsold Apple in May. Hacking into an iPhone in one minute. And more videos for Amazon Prime members. Well, the whiners are going to get their way. Sort of. The constant whining that Microsoft took my start button away means the start button's going to be back in Windows 8.1, which will be released by the end of the year. Microsoft will make lots of other changes to the operating system, but they are unlikely to placate the whiners. There are times when I want to shout, Get! and insert some profane expletive here, Over it! You don't need the start button or the start menu. This is one of those times. But there are also times when I want to shout, Microsoft, you... Insert some other profane expletive here. Idiots! This is one of those times, too. The whiners who simply can't seem to figure out how to use a computer without a start button will finally get their way because Microsoft will be reinstating the start button in Windows 8.1 before the end of the year. The Start button will not, however, lead to the Start menu. It will simply go to the existing Start screen. All this really accomplishes is the elimination of some valuable real estate in the taskbar, without the change that the whiners want, which is the Start menu. I was going to call them the incompetent whiners, but maybe that's a little too much. Fortunately, there are going to be some worthwhile advances, too although most of these are going to be targeted on portable devices. Now that makes sense because Windows 8 already works quite well with desktops and notebooks. The cutting-edge stuff, all that's over on the tablets. Desktop and notebook users will be able to boot directly to the desktop. Hurrah! This is going to make it possible for people who have thus far been unable to figure out how to press the Windows key and the D key, as in desktop, to once again find the desktop, and possibly save each user approximately a tenth of a second per day. Yeah, I guess I am a little surly about that. The Metro interface will have a much improved start screen. Currently, the tiles are available in only two sizes, large and enormous. The update will add a size that Microsoft calls small. I would call it normal. And for some reason, they're going to add an even larger size that probably should simply be called Ridiculous. The Start button can be set up to perform either of two actions. It can do what it does right now and just show the Start screen, or it can be set to display the All Apps view, which is an alphabetical list of all installed applications. It cannot be configured to display the kind of Start menu used in previous versions of Windows. And some of the pundits are already whining about not being able to rearrange the alphabetical list. Look, if you want to arrange the icons, use the Start screen. 
That's what it's for, not the all-apps view. That's the alphabetical list. Would you rearrange your dictionary? The start screen is customizable, and with the smaller tiles, it'll be even better. Among the improvements that even Windows haters might grudgingly consider to be worthwhile is improved functionality in the Metro Interface Search function, which will now examine the web, your installed applications, any content you've stored on SkyDrive, and files stored locally on the computer. Search has come a long way since its early days, and I remember back in those days when it did little but slow the computer's operation. Now it's really useful. One clear disconnect in Windows 8 is being remedied in version 8.1. The Metro Settings panel displayed only a few settings, while the full control panel was available only from the desktop. The new Settings panel in Metro contains far more settings than before, but still not everything. Now, If you're somebody who needs the full control panel, you're probably smart enough to know how to get there already and the Metro improvements will help most people who just want to modify some aspect of how their computer works. The 8.1 update will allow the Metro interface to resize and position up to four apps on a single screen. Currently, you're limited to just two, and the sizing really isn't very flexible. And for those who have multiple screens, Metro is going to be able to run on both, or all of them if you have more than two, instead of just one which perhaps goes to prove that Metro isn't just for those portable devices. But for many of the pundits, it still comes back to that old start menu, and a surprising number of experts who really should know better are still suggesting that people obtain applications that replace the start menu. These, of course, are the same people who, when the start menu was invented, railed about the stupidity of using a start menu to shut down the computer even though most of them were probably quite familiar with using a start key to shut down their automobiles. Here's my position on the whole thing. A Windows computer without a start button is a lot like a llama without a pastrami sandwich. At their most basic, Office software suites offer the ability to create and edit text documents and numeric documents. They may also provide email, presentation, and database applications. Today's choices include both applications that users install on their computers and applications that are delivered as a service from the Internet. And there are some that are kind of a hybrid. So, over the next few years, people are going to be making choices about how they're going to use these applications. The first major decision will be whether you want to have the applications that are installed on your computer or use the software as a service. To some extent, that decision will depend on how many power features you need. The capabilities of online services pale when compared to either Microsoft Office or LibreOffice. As online services are going to improve over time, they've already improved quite a lot. But today's power users probably still need the capabilities that come with software that's installed locally. If you're considering changing from one system to another, an installed system to online, or maybe from PC to Mac, or Mac to PC, or online to installed, keep in mind there is going to be a period during which you or your company's productivity will suffer. 
Recently, I read a message posted to an online discussion list. The poster had switched from a Windows PC to a Mac and from Office 2010 on the Windows machine to Office 2011, which is the equivalent on the Mac machine. He was extremely frustrated and proceeded to list 20 things that he detested about the Mac in general and Office 2011 specifically. A very wise person that I once worked for liked to explain how critically important it is to determine that the software you want to use will do what you want it to do on the hardware you plan to buy before you buy the software or the hardware. It's easy to assume, as this poor chap did, that that shiny new computer and the applications that you bought will run exactly as you want them to without any effort on your part to learn how they work or how to configure them. What's hard is finding out that your easy decision was wrong. Most of the complaints that the writer had could easily be fixed, but some were simply differences in application implementation between the PC version and the Mac version of Office. The two versions are developed by separate teams that are separated by hundreds of miles. And although Windows computers and Macs are more similar than they are different, some of the complaints were the result of differences between operating systems, and those would not be resolved, at least not easily. So the point is this. Due diligence is required. Decisions made in haste and without considering the various implications of the choices often come back with some bad news. Now, incidentally, if you're thinking about switching from a PC to a Mac or from a Mac to a PC, that's a bit beyond the topic of this podcast. But here's a little help. If you want to go from a PC to a Mac, it's easy. Buy a copy of David Pogue's Missing Manual series called Switching to the Mac. Pogue is the personal technology columnist for the New York Times, and you'll find his book online and in many bookstores. Now, if you're going the other way, good luck. I wasn't able to find any books about switching from a Mac to a PC. Maybe that's because PCs are easy for Mac users to figure out. Maybe not as many people switch from Macs to PCs. Actually, all I came up with was an article in the Christian Science Monitor entitled Five Lessons from an Apple Fanboy. If you're looking at online services, you're probably thinking of Google Apps, but there are others. There's Zoho, and there's Microsoft Office 365. Google Apps and Microsoft's Office 365 are the best known of the online services, but Zoho offers an interesting approach. The primary applications that people need are present in all three. In Zoho, they're called Writer, Sheet, Show, Mail, and Calendar for the word processor, spreadsheet, presentations, email, and scheduling. Google Apps has Docs, Sheets, Slides, Gmail, and Calendar. And for Microsoft Office 365, you've got Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. And for email and scheduling, at least in some versions of Microsoft Office 365, you have Outlook. Some versions of Office 365 offer all of the Microsoft Office suite applications that can be installed on users' computers in the office and at home. This, however, applies only to the Enterprise version, and it requires 25 users at $20 per license per month. If you're thinking about online services, I recommend reading an article by Tech Republic's Ian Hardenberg, in which he compares the core features of Microsoft Office 365 and Google Apps. 
His article doesn't include the Zoho offerings, but it does include an application you can download and review to determine whether one of these offerings would serve your needs. Note, though, that the downloadable application must be purchased from Tech Republic's online store for $50, unless you're a pro member of Tech Republic, which costs $99 a year. If you are, you can download the report at no additional charge. But you can read the basic report online for free. So let's take a quick look at two applications on your desktop. As with computers, there are more similarities than differences between Microsoft's Office Suite and LibreOffice. The primary differences are price, LibreOffice is free and Microsoft Office is not, and the user interface. Microsoft uses a ribbon interface that some people like and others detest, and LibreOffice uses a more traditional interface that some people like and others detest. Each can edit the other's files, and the conversion between formats can be counted on to work most of the time. Still, if you're collaborating primarily with people who use one suite or the other, and particularly if they use any of the power user features, or if you do, the safer option is going to be to use the application that created the file. That would be Word for Doc and DocX files, and Writer for ODT files. Both LibreOffice Writer and Microsoft Word are powerful applications. Both contain far more features than most people will ever use. That, in fact, is a common problem with many applications today. They are so feature-rich that, in attempting to meet all of every user's needs, they become bloated and tend to confuse users who can't find the features they want among the forest of features that they'll never use. Writer might be the better application for you, and Word might be the better application for me, or vice versa. It all depends on what's important to you. Word 2013 has a navigator pane that lets you move through the document quickly and easily. Writer actually improves over Word's offering by allowing navigation by more than just headlines. But how many people even know this feature exists in either application? Word's Grammar Checker is by far better than any other application's attempt. Now, ideally, we shouldn't need something to tell us that lose means you can't find something and loose means it's not tight, or to tell us the difference between the various theirs, T-H-E-I-R, T-H-E-R-E, and T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, or to call us out when we use I-T apostrophe S when we really mean the possessive it's without the apostrophe. But, let's face it, even professional writers sometimes write the wrong word. And if you do, word has your back. I happen to like this feature because I think it's a good safety net. My wife hates it. Fortunately, it can be turned off. Those are just a few of the hundreds, or thousands more likely, of features. In some cases, the open-source, free LibreOffice writer is ahead. In others, the proprietary, non-free Microsoft Word takes the lead. Determining which is going to be right for you requires determining which is going to be right for you. And that statement really isn't as dumb as it sounded. In short circuits, Samsung might have outsold Apple in May. 
Investment research firm Canaccord Genuity says that Samsung appears to have sold more phones in the U.S. in May than Apple did. The survey included AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint stores and showed that Samsung's Galaxy S4 was the top seller for Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, although it was still in second place at AT&T, second to Apple's iPhone 5. Note, though, that the figures don't include sales made at Apple's stores, and I think it's a safe bet to assume that Apple didn't sell any Samsung phones. But whether Samsung is number one or number two might be less important than the fact that it is number one or number two. In other words, this company has found a way to sell a lot of smartphones in a market that many people still see as being dominated by Apple. The companies are bitter enemies. The United States International Trade Commission this week issued a ban on the importation of several older Apple devices because Apple infringed Samsung's patents in developing the phone. Apple is also suing Samsung for violating Apple's patented technologies. The prohibited phones include the iPhone 4 for AT&T's network. Although Apple says it will appeal the decision, the Trade Commission ban will have little commercial effect on sales for either company. The ruling might also be extended to ban imports of the iPhone 3GS, that's almost an antique, the iPad 3G, and the iPad 2. The iPad 2? The iPad 2 3G for AT&T Wireless. How many of those are selling these days? So although the ruling won't have much of an effect on Apple, it could change the way patent law is interpreted, and it gives Samsung a clear victory in light of the fact that it's been on the losing side of several legal actions by Apple. South Korean securities analyst Park Hyun told Bloomberg News that the ruling will probably have a negative impact on Apple and might give Samsung a chance to narrow its market share gap with Apple in the United States. The downside for everybody is that this decision is also likely to fuel the patent wars that are threatening to stall innovation. does it take to hack an iPhone? Less than a minute. It's possible to defeat security on an iPhone and plant malware on it in less than a minute. Actually, that sounds somewhat more alarming. Actually, it sounds a lot more alarming than it really is. But it is something to be wary of nonetheless. Georgia Institute of Technology researchers created the technique, and it's less threatening because it requires a physical connection to the phone, specifically a charger. Plug your phone into the charger, and in less than a minute, it will have been infected with malware that's extremely difficult to find. Billy Lau, Yeonjin Jan, and Chenju Song plan to demonstrate what they call MACTANs at the annual Black Hat Conference in July. The researchers have described the problem to Apple, but they refuse to provide details about the exploit because Apple's developers haven't yet addressed the issue. So, if somebody offers you a free recharging service for your iPhone, it might be a good idea to decline that offer right now.
Amazon has signed an expanded licensing deal for streaming videos from Viacom. Amazon Prime is the $80 annual membership program that provides no extra cost two-day shipping for many Amazon products, some streaming videos, and a little occasional free Kindle content. The new agreement will add thousands of new TV episodes to the service, and reportedly some of the newly available shows will be offered only to Amazon Prime subscribers. Netflix had a similar deal with Viacom, but the agreement expired recently and was not renewed. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings has characterized the agreement as being too expensive for non-exclusive content. Netflix has been experimenting with development of its own original content. According to Amazon's Vice President of Digital Video and Music, Bill Carr, children's programming is one of the most popular offerings. The new agreement will add what Carr calls the largest subscription selection of Nickelodeon and Nick Jr. TV shows online anywhere. Children's programming will also add Dora the Explorer, Bubble Guppies, and The Backyardigans. For older viewers, Amazon will provide programs such as Awkward, Tosh.O, and Workaholics. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.